Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. An Elio's Original each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert Dr. Kailani Cook. Dr. Cook is a historian and professor at UH West Oahu, his book, Return to Kahiki, Native Hawaiians in Oceania, explores Native Hawaiian cultural and political exchanges across Oceania during the high watermark of American and European imperialism in the 19th century. Let's hear what he has to say about the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy. Dr. Cook, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me today. So could you start off by telling us the history of the first people to settle in the Hawaiian islands. When did they get there and how, and what kind of a social structure did they set up? Um, so I know it's a lot. Yeah. It, it, it's, <laughs> and it's because it's mostly in the anthro area. There's a lot of unknowns. You know, most likely looking at people migrating in from Raiatea, maybe the Marquesas, you know, it's all part of a, a long-scale Austronesian migration. And there's a lot of, before the Austronesians set out, there's people already in like, you know, Papua New Guinea, uh, et cetera, um, that migrated out into, you know, into the ocean earlier. The Austronesian sort of seafaring culture developed where things seem to stand now. And there's always new stuff coming out with DNA and everything. People started 
developing a canoe based culture with the outrigger. So that's somewhere around like the Philippines and Taiwan and Southeast Asia. And they start booking it out into the Pacific. Some, some people just go straight out from the Philippines to like Guam. Wow. Like the people of Madagascar actually, I mean, they went across the Indian ocean from that, that sort of culture. Um, and then, you know, make it out to the Pacific. There's a lot of sort of cultural sharing and shifting around with the Papuans. Um, and so like most of the food groups, you know, when they're coming into new islands, they're bringing taro, banana, um, et cetera. It's an agricultural package that's coming along. So people are moving, bringing this agricultural practice or package or cultural package. They're picking up more stuff. At some point, somebody like someone's crazy cousin went to South America <laughs> and picked up sweet potatoes. So it's Kumara or Uwala and like, they brought that back. So that ended up part of the package. So the Hawaiians are settled in like the, there's sort of spurts of, of migration. The Hawaiians are part of that last group. So it's probably from like Raiatea. The old name for that was Habaiki, probably named after Savai'i in Samoa. Um, so Habaiki becomes Hawaii. Um, and the, you know, the Maori trace themselves to Habaiki. All our languages are really similar. Um, Samoan and Hawaiian are, you know, a little bit more distant because they're further back in the migration versus this last group where like the languages are really similar. So probably that area, Marquesas, Raitea. And did they have a, a social structure? How did they kind of uh, run their community? We don't know. I mean, we know what kind of roughly what was going on in places like Tahiti. And, you know, similar things do pop up in Hawaii. But that first, I mean, you know, at first it's, we don't even know if it's a starting population of 100 or 300. So probably at first it's going to be much less rigorously hierarchical. Um, mm -hmm. Later on, you will see hierarchy develop um, as you end up with larger kingdoms, in, on, uh -huh. especially on, on the, the bigger islands. Um, I've, one of the arguments someone at, at our actually at West Wahoo has made um, Ross Quarty is that it's when people are moving from the wet side of the island to the dry side, wet side of the island, you're pretty, you have tons of resources. As you move to the dry side, you're going to end up with situations where you build up to good years. So in your, your population is growing in like good eras. And then when you hit a dry spot, then all of a sudden you're going to have to start fighting more. And that's possibly what drives some of the fighting. Um, and that will drive more hierarchy because you end up with um, kind of having to establish, um, you know, more, more hierarchy. So you're a more efficient right. fighting group. But that is all anthro. And there's a good or anthro in archaeology. And there's a good amount of like, yeah, we think this is how it goes. Um, it's held up by some of the, the oral histories of the era that have been handed down. Um, but definitely you end up with a more hierarchical system emerging. So by the time you get to, you know, Kamehameha is the one who unifies all the islands. But by the time you get there, you have multiple generations of inter-island fighting and, and conquests among chiefs. Mm -hmm. um, it's a pretty rigor, like rigid class system of uh, chiefly class and uh, the, the common people. And, you know, there is movement in between between generations but um you know within a, a generation it's pretty rigid um yeah 
So who were the first European explorers to land in Hawaii and how did their arrival affect uh, the native Hawaiian population? Um, it's going to be Cook. I mean, Cook, it's going to be the, the same answer for and- a lot of the Pacific. <laughs> um, which, no relation. I should yeah, throw that, that, was throw that in early. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's always the first day of class is like, I'm Professor Cook. I'm teaching Hawaiian history, and no, no, not not related. <laughs> um, so Cook shows up. He's pretty experienced in the Pacific. It's his third voyage, um, and he has enough familiarity and a very sort of rough understanding of Tahitian and stuff, so that he can kind of communicate. Uh, the immediate, I mean, the immediate effects are it's in this period of inter-island warfare, and so there's. People were like, hey, you got a lot of guns um, really quickly. Um, and the first the first interaction on Kauai, um, he shot a dude or one of his guys shot it. Um, one of the chiefs was like, oh, what's this thing? I want it. I'm taking it. I'm grabbing it because there's a lot of um, ideas about property were much looser. And it was just right. like, oh, you're a guest and you're like, we're giving you all this stuff. But also, I kind of want to take this thing, so I'm going to grab it. And one of Cook's men was like, oh, you don't do that. Boom, and shot him. So right, like pretty early there, like, oh, guns, got that. Um, Knives, et cetera. Um, Like swords are are great for for fighting in war when everyone else has wood and stone. Um, So they were like, hey, maybe you you work with us in this war. Um, And he refused to. So that was one of the reasons he was kind of, they're kind of eager for him to leave. Like, well, if you're not going to help us in this war, um, Kalani Opu, who's the um, ruling chief of the Big Island, kind of wanted his support against Maui. Um, so they push him off. Um, so one of the, like, you're already starting to see in warfare, people kind of being like, oh, okay, these weapons will be incredibly useful in these existing wars. Um, the other thing is he did bring venereal disease. Um, he was aware of the impact of venereal disease on uh Pacific population, but especially like the sort of Eastern Polynesian populations, like we, uh, we fucked a lot. Um, <laughs> I like, there's no real other, like when you look at all this, all this, it was just like, yeah, like there wasn't VD um, ideas about rearing children were they were much more sort of broader family based. So, I mean, fathers were, were there, like fathers were part of the package, but like your, your mother's brothers were like as important in raising you as your fathers were. Um, and there's a lot of movement of people back and forth. People are being raised by grandparents, cousins, et cetera. Like children actually move around a lot. So they're actually sort of raised by the whole extended family. Um, so a lot of the problems with, um, the problems with people screwing around a lot that that in Europe are huge issues because they're like, you'll get VD, like we won't be able to trace parentage and that means you're going to be a bastard and that means you're going to be like, there's all these legal structures. In Hawaii, it wasn't really an issue. So there was a lot of sex. And so when Cook shows up and his sailors, I mean, they're sailors, so they're pretty filthy. Um, <laughs> they, they give everybody VD on Kauai. By the time he comes back a year later, um, or at the end of this, this or sailing season, he wants to come back in the winter because he doesn't want to be in Alaska in the winter. Um, people are are literally like jumping on a canoe, 
sailing after him, catching up because the canoes are pretty fast and, and basically yelling out like, hey, do you have any, you, you gave us all BD. We don't know what BD is, but you gave it to us. We know you gave us something. Um, so the immediate impact was the venereal disease. And that's going to be throughout the, the 19th century. That's going to be the most significant impact of like beyond anything else. The population decline from um, dying off during actual epidemics. Um, venereal disease, usually, you know, it's people aren't really dying that often from venereal disease unless it's mm-hmm. syphilis or something, but it does have a huge impact on fertility. Mm. So between all these things, the population from I mean, the absolute low ball estimates for when Cook shows up are over 100,000. The estimates for of the Native Hawaiian population at the end of the 19th century are around 35,000. Wow. The more accepted pop, uh, estimates are closer to between 200 and 400,000. Uh, if you take that 400,000 number down to thir- about 36,000, I mean, that's a massive drop in population. So everything that we're going to be talking about today has to be understood in, in this lens of, of massive die-off. Um, wow. And the amount of, I mean, it's the same thing that happens in the Americas in the 1600s. Um, it's, I mean, that's going to shape a lot of this stuff. It's just death. Yeah. So when and how was the Hawaiian monarchy established? Um, and can you tell us uh, about its first monarch? Okay. So you're going to have to, it's going to, there's going to be like a couple of different answers. Um, the idea of monarchs, we didn't really have monarchs. We had ruling chiefs. Uh, so it's, I mean, it's a little bit different. It's just, it's less, it's basically a ruling chief is going to rule and there's going to be a less structured um, governmental system that we had sort of recognized as a monarchy. He's gotcha. going to have, things that he's expected to do, but it's, it's going to be a constantly shifting set of arrangements that work as the administration. Um, when we get to Kamehameha, he's going to be the first one to conquer most of the islands. And he's going to, partly it's going to be, he's, he's a really good, um, he's, he's an okay strategist, et cetera, but he's really good at forming alliances um, and he's a good, he's good at keeping sort of knowing who is around him is a threat, knowing who around him is a, an ally, where the balance is, and he, he has good people around him. So that allows him to form a really powerful force, military force to go through and conquer all the way through to Oahu. Um, the other thing is Kahikili, who according to some accounts may have actually been his father. Uh, and at one point, Kamehameha and Kahikili are are sort of dueling to see who will rule over all of, uh, all of Hawaii. Kahikili originally owns or rules Maui, um, but takes Oahu. Kamehameha takes Maui. There's kind of a back and forth battle. And Kahikili at one point basically sends a notice to Kamehameha saying, through Kamehameha's advisor saying, um, just stop this until I'm dead. When I'm dead, you can take everything over, but you're not going to win while I'm alive. And actually gives him battle plans for this is how, if I were you, I would attack me. And these are how, this is how I would defeat you, which is kind of a, like, kind it's, of a, it's a death wish. <laughs> well, it's, it's almost like 
I'm telling you how this is the best plan for defeating me. And I would crush you even if you use the best plan. Wow. Yeah. So, and he's like, when the black kappa, the black cloth covers um, Kahikili, then the islands are yours. Um, so Kahikili dies. Kamehameha actually is able to conquer Maui before he is able to conquer the whole of the big island, but he eventually conquers the whole of the big island. Maui, Oahu launches a bunch of attacks on Kauai. And by now, because of the epidemic disease, I mean, he actually has one entire army wiped out by something. We're not sure what, um, but the Kauai people also, <laughs> the Kauai people are, are hard to beat. The Kauai people still are their own thing. Um, he never conquers Kauai, but he gets a deal with the Kauai people that they will fall under his, his rule. The other thing is he sets up a, a government where it's like, okay, it's no longer chiefly rule. I am the monarch and I am like, I am the only one that can create laws. He reserves the right to create laws for himself and he reserves for himself um, basically a monopoly on, on violence, um, which any state needs to have. So he, he passes a decree saying basically the chiefs cannot attack the commoners and the, the commoners have the right to their proper, like their lives and their private holdings, um, not land, but like the, their stuff. Um, so that is the establishment of the sort of this monopoly on violence for the chieftainships. Um, but it's actually Kahumanu, his, his wife, when Kamehameha dies, Kahumanu is one of his many wives. Um, and she doesn't have children. She's not his highest ranking wife, but she is his most his closest wife and probably the most sharp political operator of that era so the way she she actually is the one who brings Kauai in um her she first she first she manipulates the new king liho liho the second liho liho kamehameha the second um by she basically maneuvers him out of power so he's still the king but she runs everything and then he tries to kidnap the king of Kauai, kamuali'i to sort of be like, ha, I've done this thing. I've conquered Kauai that my dad never did. And Ka'ahu Manu is like, cool. She marries Kaumu Ali'i and his son and is like, I actually, I, I rule Kauai now. <laughs> so she's the one that actually brings Kauai under control. She sets up a lot of the governmental structures that will become the new government. And then Kamehameha III will set up the formal constitutional government that becomes the kingdom of Hawaii. By the 1800s, who's living in Hawaii? What kind of a makeup is, is, is in the island? So the Hawaiian population is dropping steadily yeah. throughout this era. Uh, by the time you get to the 1850s, I mean, there's a small white population, the Haole population, under 1,000. Uh, Hawaiians in the 1850s were still looking at 80,000 or so. Uh, a small Chinese population um, and... They're, the Chinese population is mostly male, starting to marry into some of the Hawaiian population. And then the 1850s, they one of the things that happens is the a bunch of the Haole are like, hey, we know how to operate a, a legislative system, so elect us and we'll run things. Mm -hmm. And they push through a apprenticeship law that allows for essentially, it's a Massachusetts apprenticeship, apprenticeship law, but allows for indentured servitude. Wow. And it just so happens that that's when a bunch of these mission faction mission kids um, start sugar plantations. Wow. And then, so you see a, a large Chinese population come in, mostly men, mostly young. 
Um, so by the 1860s, 1870s, there's a pretty substantial Chinese population, but they don't, the, the idea is, and this is constant throughout sort of capitalist American and British minds, it's just, they're like, oh, they'll come in. They're like good docile coolies. They'll just come in and they'll work. And they have no, you know, they're, they're Asian. They have no ambition for themselves or understanding of a better life. And these, these dudes come in, they're like, things are really bad in China because of the opium wars. Um, but once we're here, I'm going to work for seven years and I'm getting the hell off of this plantation. So they can't control them. They can't keep them on the populations. They're marrying into Hawaiian families. Um, that's on my mom's side and my dad's side. The Chinese and the Hawaiian is coming down at the same time. Um, they try and bring in Japanese early. Japanese really quickly are like, we're getting the hell out because this is like a horrific, oppressive, exploitative, yeah. like sugar. Sugar requires cheap labor. And when labor is cheap, life is cheap. So it sucks. And then eventually, yeah, the, by the 1880s, a larger Japanese population comes in. Um, and the first group of Japanese were all male. Um, and actually, some of them married into the Hawaiian families. The second group of Japanese that come in, there's a real effort by the mission, well, not the mission, in fact, the sugar planters to keep them separate from the Hawaiian population. And there's some racism within the Japanese of that era as well. That's like, oh, well, you know, like we're the, we're an empire now. We don't, you know, screw you guys. Um, so you're seeing a separate Japanese population that by the 1890s is actually mm -hmm. the largest population in Hawaii. However, they have no political say. And most uh, of them are people who had immigrated within the last sort of eight to 10 years. And they had immigrated. What Kalakaua had promised the Japanese empire before the Bayonet constitution was they will come in as workers, but they will become citizens. Like they will, I, I need population because their population is dying. I want the Japanese to come in because he'd been to Japan and he really liked what Jap like the Japanese are doing there is that they're, they're still Japan, but they're adopting all this stuff. They refuse to just become Europe. But at the same time, they're like, yeah, we're going to go ahead and do all these things that we like from Europe. So he likes the Japanese. He wants them to come in. Um, he had met with the emperor personally. And so the Japanese are the majority of the population there's a pretty substantial Portuguese population that's brought in for, from Madeira. And the 1890s, 1890s, about 40,000 native Hawaiians, including a growing Hapa population, which is mixed mm -hmm. Hawaiian Chinese and Hawaiian Haole. And then this, this Japanese population that by the time you get to 1900 is, I think, around 80,000. I think they're actually so a, very large. a majority of the population. Yeah. yeah. So... I, I want to talk about the, the the signing of the bayonet constitution. Um, I, how who was the can you talk to us about who the Hawaiian League was and what their involvement in the signing of the constitution and also like what did the constitution mandate? Okay, so it's the Hawaiian League. It's a mix. I mean, the leadership is actually going to be technically Hawaiian citizens, but it's going to be these mission kids. Um, Thurston's one of them, like these mission kids who their parents came in to be like, oh, we're going to, you know, and there's a certain amount of we are better and we must teach you to be like us going on there. But their their parents were definitely fully like we're doing this for for Jesus. The kids are like, we're doing this for us. Thurston then believed that 
they, because their parents were the missionaries, that they have the right to run Hawaii, that Hawaii was created by the missionaries. And we really deserve this. And as long as the Hawaiian rulers follow us, we won't have any problems. Kalakaua is not following them. And at the beginning of his rule, he's pretty weak because there's a, an election between Kalakaua and Queen Emma, who is the widow of Queen, uh, King Kamehameha V, or fourth. Um, and the Emma supporters were still pissed at Kalakaua. So Kalakaua comes in and power is, for the first time, the population is not fully behind the monarch because there's the Emma supporters and then Kalakaua. Um, so he has, to, he has to do a lot to bring those Emma supporters in. And so he does a lot of stuff culturally. Um, his whole thing is to revive the nation, revive the population. He does a lot of board of health stuff to try and like, and leprosy to try and deal with, um, you know, smallpox keeps coming in, all these sorts of things. Um, he is trying to grow the population through immigration. He is also trying to rejuvenate Hawaiian culture because there is a period around the 1840s, 1850s, where the missionaries do a really good job of crushing Hawaiian culture. They don't, they never make hula go away, but they make hula a thing that's not publicly acceptable. And Kamehameha the fourth and fifth bring it back. Kalakaua goes all out. He, he makes it a central part of his of his reign to bring hula back in public and huge public demonstrations to make Hawaiian culture a central part of what a modern Hawaiian nation is, that it's not just Hawaii in the past did these things and we've grown out of it and we do these new things because we're European now. He's, he's like, no, like, look at Japan, look at all these other places. We know because we're already seeing in Hawaii, you don't need to give up who you are in order to be part of the present and the future. Like the present and the future is not strictly European and American. That's bullshit. That's what they're trying to get you to think. So the mission faction hates him. There's rumors of a coup in 1880 um, and he kind of massages that over. But between 1880 and 1886, Kalakaua lumps them in the elections. And because they lose the elections, they were so sure that they're like, hey, we still control the churches. We still control all these things. We can control what the Hawaiians are going to do. The mission faction loses in all of those. So by the time you get to 1886, They've lost consecutively in elections. They put a ton of money into elections in 1884 and 86, and they lost. Democracy is not going to hand them the power that they want. Um, so they, they basically get their militia out. They're rich. They have good guns. It's the 1880s. Huge advancements in weapon technology. So they, they basically get a, a militia out and demand Kalakaua sign this new constitution the new constitution, they call it a democratic constitution. They're like, it's more democratic. Um, they basically pull all the nobles out. Like they get rid of all the nobles from the government and they, they take away a lot of the king's powers. Um, it's very sort of American. Like, no, like kings are always bad and anti-democratic. But then they put in these voting laws that essentially make sure that they can, like you have to have a certain amount of wealth to vote for the upper house. And they're the ones who have that wealth. And they also ban any, um, any agents who weren't already citizens from be, be, like being allowed to vote. However, even if you, and actually you could, you couldn't, they want to make sure the Japanese can't vote. The Chinese are already voting and they're like pro Kalakawa because they know, they know what's up. They know what's up. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, there had been Chinese in the, in the privy council, sort of the, the private council of, of different kings before. 
they want they want to strip the Chinese merchants of of any political power, and they want to make sure the Japanese never have any power because they want to keep that labor poor and basically powerless. And so they pass a bunch of there's racial exclusions built into the law um, to keep people from being able to vote. Um, being able to become citizens, but also if you speak any European language, even if you are not a citizen, you can vote because they want the Portuguese who are still Portuguese citizens to vote because they're like, you guys will vote white. Yeah, it's pretty like it's wow. really they're pretty open about these things, um, and they leave all the power in the hands. Even though the lower house, all the Hawaiian, actually Hawaiian men, because they they add in a male clause there, um, can vote. For the lower house, the upper house and the cabinet, which is where you have to have the money to get, to vote for the upper house, and they they basically put a gun to him. Well, a figurative gun. They're like, all the guns are outside. Make us your cabinet. The cabinet and the upper house can decide all like on their own can decide all of the legislative things. All Kalakaua has is a veto. Wow. So he vetoes everything, and actually, the funny thing is. These are lawyers that set it up and they're so, they're like, we're so brilliant. We're going to set it up. By 1890, they've, they left enough cracks in there that they actually get pushed out. All of the, a lot of the Chinese merchants start paying their Hawaiian um, employees enough that they qualify to vote for the upper house. (laughs) The Portuguese start voting for against them because they're like, yeah, we're not voting for you because we're white. We're voting against you because we're poor. So right. they, they actually see a pretty big shift in this thing. 18, by 1890, this, this thing they've set up, they just like, well, we democracy, as we've set it up, because we control the churches, we control votes, that failed them. They create this new constitution and they're like, well, it's pseudo-democratic, but we've rigged it so that we will always win. By 1890, they've lost that. By 1890, they, they know the only thing they have left is a coup. And they're starting to think about it already because Kalakawa wants to push through a new constitution. He doesn't really have the courage to do it because he's worried about like, you know, another attack, but the legislature is pushing through all these things and cutting away at that 1887 constitution. And it's only a matter of time before the population demands a a massive change to the constitution. They're already demanding it, but to demand aggressively, that we go back to something where the Hawaiians um, actually have control of their own government. Yes. Okay. So can you, so now uh, Queen, uh, King Kalakaua's uh, death and uh, Queen Lili Uokalani, I hope I'm saying that right. Um, Close. Sort of. (laughs) (laughs) Um, She comes into power. um, can you walk us through the events leading to the coup, essentially, that happens in 1893? Okay, so, yeah, and this goes back to the death, too. He yeah, had, okay. they had, there's four of these siblings. They were all sort of of a rank. Um, and Kalakaua and Lulu Okalani are the only ones left alive um, mm. by that time. Um, the brother died. Um, the sister, Lika Lika, died. So they're still She's she's the heir, um, and she um, the mission faction was actually a little bit psyched about this because she was the only one that was still part of the congregational church, and they controlled the congregational church. Like she was the choir director at Kauai which is like the main like that's their center of power. 
And, and Kalakau and the rest of it had go, gone over to the Anglican church because they didn't want to be under the thumb of the mission faction anymore. Um, so, the, but when she came in, like, and she, like she married a white guy, like they were like, oh, she'll be, and she's a woman, like she won't have any courage or anything like that. She comes in and she's like, from the moment I came in, I've been receiving petitions from the population that they want the constitution changed. Um, she also has to deal with a bunch of the people that got elected when Kalakaua refused to change the constitution were like, screw it. Like they're led by this like Hapa Hawaiian dude who was in Italy and he like inspired by Garibaldi and he wants to be a revolutionary, this guy, Robert Wilcox. And they're like, if you won't change the constitution back, then we will get rid of the monarchy and we will have a, a, an actual democratic republic where that's run by the Hawaiians. So she has to deal with them. She has to deal with this mission faction that still controls about a third of the population. Um, and it's really hard to get anything done because you have these three main factions and you have sort of the people loyal to her. So she's, she says, one thing that will make the two factions, the two Hawaiian factions happy and make the majority of the, the population happy is we just throw it out. We get a new constitution by decree. And like, well, so she has this new constitution. She's going to push it through by decree. Her cabinet is actually like, yeah, you should do it. And then they get threats from the Americans and the British that like you shouldn't do it. So she pulls back. And that night, um, the American representative in Hawaii, the diplomatic representative, Stevens, calls for the, and he'd already set this up, the troops from the Boston to be landed. The Marines land and guard the, the, the basically the embassy, not the embassy, the, the consul's office. The sailors line up across the Olandi Palace and they're like, we're here to make sure no chaos happens. <laughs> and everyone's like, what chaos? And then this guy, Cooper, who's just showed up in Hawaii a couple of years before, but tied in really quickly with this mission faction, goes behind and declares that the, the monarchy is dead and we're the new government. And he, the only people there are the American troops he's reading this to the backs of. <laughs> and... This is, you know, this is all building up in Hawaii, but Thurston, who's one of the mission guys, and Smith have both been to Washington, D.C. They had talked to people in the Harrison administration. They had gotten an okay through the Secretary of State's office. Uh, Secretary of State Blaine was just this rabid expansionist. Um, he had already been like two years earlier. He was like, Hawaii is probably going to be one of the things we take. And we also want Cuba and Puerto Rico. Um, so he's already calling those shots in 1890. Um, Stevens is one of his guys. Stevens helps them plan the American representative to Hawaii. You know, we have treaties, we're a friendly power, et cetera. The American representative to Hawaii helps plan the coup. And he makes sure that the American troops on the, the ship, this, the U.S.'s Boston, think that there will be massive turmoil and that they have to come in to, to protect American lives. And stepping even further back, this is a period from 18, the 1880s to, to 1900. The U.S., the British, the Germans, to a lesser degree, the, the Japanese are looking to grab more and more of the Pacific because everything else in the world has been called. The parts of Asia they can't conquer, they're not taking. Like interior China, they're not taking that. Like they just can't. But every Africa in 1884, they sat around a map cut up Africa on a map and we're like, everybody takes their slice. Um, so the Pacific is next. And they're actually calling for a conference where they're going to sit down and cut up the rest of the Pacific. So Kalakaua had known 
we were in trouble. He tried to create an alliance with the Samoans and the Tongans to like, you know, if we're all together, <laughs> hopefully yeah. they can take us out. Um, they can take us out militarily, but it'll create more of a diplomatic hassle for them if they try. And that's one of the reasons for the Bayonet Constitution was the people in Hawaii, the, this mission faction in Hawaii were incredibly upset that Kalakau dared to try and create an alliance to prevent empire from coming. Um, so if you step and like, you know, the Samoa is taken by the Germans once in 1887, there's a deal in 1889 where the British Germans and the Americans all split Samoa. Tonga is independent, but the British basically put a, they're like, that's, we got dibs on that. If it ever comes up, we're taking Tonga. And in backroom deals, they had made deals with the Americans that if Hawaii ever comes up, the U.S. is taking it. Um, so they're, they've split everything up. They're going to take everything. And by 1900, they have taken everything. So it's not just this thing happening in Hawaii. The background is the, the major powers are just going out and grasping whatever little bits of the world are left for, for empire because they've, I mean, they've taken everything else. So, so yeah. So I'm assuming that the United States, what was the U S uh, government's reaction to the coup? They were, they must've been all on board. So the Harrison, like Harrison, I've read stuff where Harrison was like not fully on board, but the argument was that Harrison didn't want to launch an attack on Hawaii to take it over. But the Harrison administration, I mean, he puts Blaine in as secretary of state and Blaine's main thing is like, we right. got to grab more of the world. You have guys like Roosevelt who are over in the Navy, Naval office who are all like, we got to go and grab these islands so that we can have we can have ma major bases all across the Pacific and then we can reach out and start conquering over in Asia. Um, so the Harrison administration is all, all in. Uh, mm. However, the coup happens after Cleveland is elected. So Harrison is still in office, puts the thing, puts the, they, they race over immediately, get over the mission faction, get over to DC. They've already worked this all out. They get a treaty in to get Hawaii next to, to the U S because they know they can't actually control Hawaii without military force and the U.S. is their military force. So they, they get over to the U.S., they get this treaty of annexation through, it's in the Congress, and then Cleveland becomes president, pulls it back, and is like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. Um, and Cleveland was already, he's an anti-imperialist, but also we have, like, we have friendly relations with Hawaii, and I'm getting letters from the Queen being like, the U.S. landed troops and took over this island that we're pretty friendly with. Like, no one really has a beef with Hawaii, except the Germans, but that's different. Um, and so <laughs> Cleveland pulls it back, sends a sends a Blunt, who is uh, to this, this dude to come and investigate. Blunt comes and investigates, comes back, he's like, yeah, this is an act of war. Like, we landed troops in a friendly act, and there was no, there was no coup without the U.S. troops. But then um, Cleveland tries to return Hawaii to the U.S., and the U.S. is in a expand like growing into this expansionist era but also a lot of the pro overthrow pro expansionist newspapers are saying like hey you can't like these are savages like we took over islands from like the queen is a savage and there's all this stuff where they're portraying her as this absolute savage and it's like she, she led the choir at the, at the church um, <laughs> like she wrote piano music and they're like, no, she's like running through jungles, trying to take people's heads off. And it's like, although that would be cool, so. that's not what happened. <laughs> so they, um, yeah, they're, Cleveland administration is too weak to do anything. The public, mm. a lot, enough of the public and enough of the, the Congress still wants us. So 
the guys, he says, well, we're not annexing Hawaii. And so in that time, and he pulls the, the U.S. troops out. In that time, they build up a mercenary army. There's like civil war veterans and stuff, like all these people. So they, they create an army to control the Hawaiian population. But a lot of, there's 1895, there's a, a, te- a brief attempt, failed. Um, like Hawaiians hadn't had a, a war since 19, 1820. So we failed at our counter-revolution. Sure. But they, they, they create an army um, and they, they create a republic to basically serve as their government, but it was going to fall. Like there's, there's successive attempts. Once Cleveland's out, um, the McKinley administration tries to annex Hawaii, but it fails in the Senate, partly because racist Southern senators were like, we don't want all these brown people coming in. And it was like one of those few times where it's like, oh God, Thank you, racist Southern senators. Oh, wow. Like that. But also enough of the anti-imperialists, like the Cleveland backers were like, no, we're not doing this. Lulu Okalani writes a book in English and write, goes over to DC and does a whole like media blitz, basically to just like, we don't want to be a next. So annexation fails in the Senate where it has to go through as a treaty. Um and the, the Republic was going to fall. There are millions and millions and millions of dollars in debt. They were all getting their little piggy figures into stuff. So they're all pulling money out. Um, they're being paid more as reserve officers than actual like U.S. Army officers at this point. So they're, they're getting their fingers in the trough. Um, and that means a massive amount of debt. The population doesn't back them. They are going to fall. And then the Spanish-American War happens. Um, Spanish-American War... They want more coaling stations. They already have control over Pearl Harbor, but now they want all of Hawaii. And so during the Spanish-American War, they have a joint resolution of Congress. There's no actual treaty. They just sit back in Congress and say, hey, everybody in Congress vote because we know the Senate will vote against it, but the House will vote for it. So they vote. Everyone gets one vote. Um, The senators are overpowered. And now we have this, this sort of treaty of annexation that isn't. Um, Mm. And that's how we become territory so unfortunately we're running out of time so i'm going to ask you our last question that we ask all of our guest experts at the end of the day if you had to pick a person or thing it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the overthrow of the hawaiian monarchy who or what would that be ah i've been dreading this um (laughs) do any of the historians actually give you a straight answer on this yeah. Oh, crap. <laughs> um, so I would say imperialism with a, a generous sprinkling of white supremacy. Because yes. that, you know, imperialism doesn't obviously like China has had an empire. Like <laughs> it's not always white supremacy, but that particular era of empire is so heavily, heavily drenched in the ideas of white supremacy that they couldn't even go for an old school empire where they're like, we'll take over Hawaii, but you continue to be a kingdom, but you're part of our empire thing. They're like, no, we need, and they openly in the U S Congress, when they're setting up the territory, the people who committed the overthrow, all of their backers in the newspapers, they say, we need to create an undemocratic system in the name of white supremacy, like in order for the white population to continue controlling Hawaii we need an undemocratic system. And the territorial period is one of the most undemocratic periods of modern Hawaiian history. Since the constitution of 1839 onwards, the territorial period is 
inherently undemocratic. Well, Dr. Cook, thank you so much. I mean, I, I have to say a lot of our guest historians also hate picking one thing to blame. So you're in very good company. Yeah, we're, we're big on context. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Well, thanks again uh, for helping us understand this history of Hawaii. Yeah, and thanks for having me. And thanks for acknowledging we exist. <laughs> of it's always great when people are like, oh, Hawaii is more than just a tourist destination. Absolutely. That's our that's our mission here. <laughs> One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Alarmist. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. Fascinating. I have to say, I love the way Dr. Cook explained things in a very colloquial way mm -hmm. for us to like really understand. He put it in terms of, of now. Yeah. And not only that, but how dense it was and yet how, how mm. clear it was at the yeah. same time. I mean, it's obviously a very dense history there where you have, and, and a lot of unknowns, as you were saying, it was in, in the beginning, a lot more is more like anthropological and stuff like um, we don't, we just don't know a lot about who was there, what they were doing. Um, but anyway, as, as the, um, as the, uh, civilization grew and, and got more complicated, he obviously, I mean, down to like the 
thousands of people in terms of population uh it was like very specific and you can like really paint a picture yeah it felt like we were getting a real-time estimation of how the hawaiians were sadly dying and who was coming into play and who the keep key players were mm-hmm. um i i had no idea that the japanese had been such a large population yeah on the island at the time and the, they were the ones that were actually being targeted and 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 uh, the, the labor class mm-hmm. that was being held back from you know having any rights right Seems, I also thought it was a, sorry go ahead good Claire. reminder how um you know voting Right. It's supposed to be like the, like, that's like the definition of democracy. We vote and like, whatever the outcome is, that's what we do. But how undemocratic voting can be when Mm -hmm. it's manipulated and only certain people are allowed to vote. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. All those moving parts of you, you guys aren't making enough money, so you can't vote. But it's like, there's the people who are seeking change. It's a good reminder how important it is to vote and how we shouldn't take that for granted. Mm Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I also want to say like when we, we stopped talking or once the interview was over, I mentioned, you know, I was Puerto Rican and he, uh, he was saying that there was a large Puerto Rican community in Hawaii that came in in 1902 and they were like, I guess conditions were just even worse that they were in Puerto Rico at the time. And they're like, we're out of here. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're not, we're not fall. You know, we can't do this. We're not going to do right. this. Right. And they co- created legislature to keep them in place too. Yes. Um, it, it really felt like the, because the politics were so sort of fluid that they could sort of create these laws um, to, and the, the controlling party could create their laws to kind of, suit the outcome that they wanted mm-hmm. and and you know mm-hmm. it it does it makes you think about democracy um in 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 a new light and it and it makes you think about i don't know yeah this the just disturbing sort of imperialism and 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 yeah. and power dynamic of of sort of the suppressor so mm, many moving parts and i thought it was interesting that uh dr cook after we got off air also explained to mm-hmm. us that when he, he was growing up, the way that it was explained to them, which is like very victim blaming, it's like you Hawaiians had some real problems. So we had to come in and like take over and fix right. it. For you. Right. <laughs> it's like a very yeah. palatable way of making yourself the hero in this story. <laughs> like, and just like being like, you should be ashamed. So don't talk right. about it. You know, yeah. right. don't ask don't any ask questions. questions. Yeah. Like that's so screwed up. Um, so he ended up blaming uh, imperialism with a sprinkle of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. I love, uh, mm-hmm. love a, a sprinkle. A dash. Yeah. I, I mean, not that I love a sprinkle of white supremacy, but I just love that idea of like, it's not just one thing, you know, it, yeah. it's, it, it's the, fueled the two, by the supremacy. Exactly. <laughs> well, white supremacy is a very potent flavor in the old season. Yeah. In, yeah. in, in the seasoning yeah. cabinet. You only need a dash. You only need really a dash. You don't need any, but it, it winds you, you, up in no, the dish. No, you really, sometimes. you really should have zero. Yeah. We should all be on a zero white supremacy diet. Jeez, Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I would say, like, we, what did we end up sending to the alarmist jail? Clinton? We threw the Hawaiian League, aka the American League, in Hawaii in jail, uh-huh. and we gave the big slap to U.S. colonialism. To U.S. colonialism, so I think Which, we're. Yeah, I, I colonialism, think, imperialism, like I think in a way, um, what do you think? Should we switch these around and, and, and end up 
sending imperialism, the American imperialism to the alarmist jail and, and slapping the, the Hawaiian League, which lady be, later became the Committee of Safety. Mm-hmm. What do we think? I don't know. For 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 me, the Hawaiian League, which later became the Committee of Safety, is such a pure distilled example Ugh. of the of manipulative the nature yeah. of white That's supremacy true. and yeah. colonialism. So maybe we keep them. We keep them there. <laughs> yeah, he went. He went more uh, macro with his answer, right, right. and I think we were hovering on that. But then we decided to go just a little bit more specific, which yeah. is why we zeroed in on the actual league itself. Yeah, you always know. And we told him done. that, and he was like, "Yeah." He, he, he was like, yeah, okay. he did agree. He did agree. He agreed. Yeah. You always know you're talking to a good expert too when they hesitate and feel like they can't answer the question of know, who's to blame. It is a hard question. I feel one, bad asking. Can you pick it, one but... person? The more angry they are about having to go with one idea or person, yeah. the better expert. Yeah, they are. yeah. You know that the the answer is going to be great. Um, well, I like his response to you when you said when we said he was a good company. Company, he said. Um, well, we historians like context, right. which I think is right. so important. Yeah. <laughs> context. Well, means we regular everything. people just like one quick answer. Yeah. A clean <laughs> one like line answer, please. Big old <laughs> headline, please. At the end. <laughs> um, well, I got to say, I wish I, I was one of Dr. Cook's students. So if you're if you're one of Dr. Cook's students, don't take him for granted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so thank you, Dr. Cook, for doing your best at doing the very brief version of what is a very dense history Mm -hmm. and stay tuned because next week we're going to be discussing marvin hemeyer's bulldozer rampage erios powered by acast